everyone, it's Erin again, coming at you from the Fort Collins, Colorado and newspaper in Northern Colorado. Thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode of The Way It Was last month. I had a bunch of people reach out and share awesome ideas for future episodes. I'll remind you towards the end of this one how best to reach me and do that, so stay tuned. In the first episode, I delved into the lost town of Stout, a quarry town flooded in the 1950s to make way for Fort Collins' beloved and much-needed Horsetooth Reservoir. In case you didn't know, though, the first podcast I actually ever put together for the Coloradoan was a couple years ago, and it centered around the cold case murder of a young woman named Peggy Hetrick. So it was nice to take on a lighter subject last month. I had fun with it, I played really, really cheesy background music, but like I said in the last episode, the way it was is about the history of Fort Collins, and history isn't always light and fun and set to cheesy background music. 39 years ago, on April 30th, 1978, a local mom took her two sons hiking up the canyon alongside the Cachalapooter River. Nestled off of Highway 14 in Roosevelt National Forest, Grey Rock Mountain Trail is a really popular hiking destination. So, not far from their home in Laporte, a tiny riverside community just north of Fort Collins, that's where Marion Vigil took her four-year-old Eric and nine-year-old Chris. What started as an innocent Sunday hike ended as one of this area's longest standing mysteries. Chris hiked ahead at one point and got lost in the unforgiving, rocky terrain of the popular trail, and he didn't come home that day. In fact, he never did. What followed was one of the most intense searches in Larimer County's history. There were spotlights and helicopters, search parties, people on horseback. But nobody ever found Chris. Nobody has ever found a sign of him. That's what this podcast is about, and it's not going to be a fun one. In this episode, I get a feeling for who Chris was. I talk to his third grade teacher. I talk to the man who led his search and rescue efforts. I chat with the father of another boy who went missing 20 years later in the same canyon. And I also chat with a writer whose interest in the curious case of a missing runner turned into a recently published story on the highly mysterious disappearances of people on our public lands. I'm Erin Udell, and this is episode two of The Way It Was, The Disappearance of Chris Vigil. Grey Rock Trail is about 20 miles northwest of Fort Collins. Before last month, I'd only hiked it once years ago. It's pretty tough. A little more than six miles round trip, it's listed as a moderate hike and is known for its rocky, rugged terrain. Just off the trail, though, only a few minutes into the hike, there's a plaque. You have to walk up a little incline, and you also have to be looking for it, but it's there. Okay, there it is. Let me take Fritz. Yeah. Thanks. That's my boyfriend, by the way, and my dog, Fritz, who is making his hiking and podcast debut. Okay. How far off the tra- from the trailhead would you say this is? Okay. The wind got the better of me and my recorder again, so I'll spare you the crackly version and just read what it says here. Christopher William Vigil, son of Leroy and Marion, born August 25th, 1968. Lost April 30th, 1978, Grey Rock, Poudre Canyon. 
And then there's a little Bible verse, Psalms chapter 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and light for my path. Well, under state law, the sheriff is responsible for search and rescue, um, wildfire, downed aircraft, drownings. That's Dick Spies. He retired from the fire department a few years ago, but before that, he worked for Larimer County. More specifically, he was the assistant operations officer of the county's emergency services department, a division of the sheriff's office. And that was back when Chris Vigil went missing. So was it relatively common to get a call about a lost hiker? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was, it was not unusual. Of course, in the, the case of any call for a, a lost child, that, that generates, uh, a different response than, um, a report of an overdue college student. So that afternoon, um, from the articles that were written following it, it sounds like um, Chris was hiking with his mom and his little brother, and I believe he hiked ahead of them, and then was last seen by another hiker at Gray Rock Meadow. Does that sound right? That's the, yeah, that's roughly correct. Um, he and his mother and his little brother had gone for a hike. His little brother is quite a bit younger than he, um, and they went up the trail. Uh, Chris was an active nine-year-old. Um, he asked his, he got bored with walking at the pace of his little brother, asked his mom if he could um, run ahead. His mom said, okay, but you have to stay in earshot. So he ran up the trail and ran back and ran up the trail and ran back, mm-hmm. and that occurred several times. Um, then his little brother um, decided he didn't want to go any farther, so his mom and little brother stopped and she started calling for him and Chris didn't come and he didn't come and she called and called. And then she, after an extended period of time, I can't recall exactly how much time passed, but she became rather panicky, um, realized that Chris wasn't coming back down the trail. Um, they had only gotten a, a little ways up the trail, so she went back to the Gray Rock Bridge where she encountered a, um, someone, got that individual to stay on the bridge in case Chris should come down, and she drove to the nearest phone um, and called emergency services, and that's when we initiated the search. There's a piece in an article about how he had run into a, a, another hiker, I believe, Yes. Um, so um, we didn't know that initially. It was only after um, the the story of this search became uh, sort of a, a public thing that the the other hiker that Chris had encountered came forward and said, "I saw him uh, basically at Gray Rock Meadow," and he tried to um, he thought it odd initially to see this kid kid being Chris came up to him, asked if he knew where the trail was. And at that point in time, the trail was rather indistinct um, where the 
the Gray Rock Meadow area is, and um, he said he wasn't sure, and um, he the the hiker expected to see an adult appear, and at some point he um, he called out to Chris saying, "Hey, I think the trail's over here." Um, and Chris did not come back to him either, um, and that was the, the last seen point. The search was on for Chris, and it sounds like they pulled out all the stops. But one little thing changed everything. Weather. According to Spies, like Colorado weather is apt to do, that afternoon's gorgeous summer-like weather turned quickly. Soon it became cold and rainy, penetratingly cold, Spies said. And that was coming from rescue teams that were in their professional gear. Chris was nine and wearing a denim jacket, a shirt, and light pants. The helicopters got closed out of the area because of weather that night, Spies said. And soon there was a snowstorm, which halted things too. But back to pulling out all the stops. They did try something else. We tried um, an experiment with a couple of children, um, roughly Chris's age, um, took them into roughly the area where Chris was last seen, um, did this independently of one another, put them within a, with a guide. There, they were shown um, the base of the trail. We took them up to the, the spot and the, with a guide um, via helicopter and asked them if they could try and find their way back down to the base of the trail. Um, and they did two entirely different things. Um, one of them just pointed himself downhill and made a beeline downhill, um, actually crossing the trail a couple of times and paying mm. absolutely no attention to it. Um, the other one just sort of wandered around in the meadow area for a while um, before just deciding, no, they couldn't find their way down and they wanted to stay where they were. Um, so what we found with the individual that went straight down the hill, he, um, he would have come to, he came to the river eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, he did not come to the river at the bridge. Now, um, is it possible that he would have had to get across the bridge to get across the river? Um, at this time, the river was flowing, at that particular year, the river was flowing um, fairly well, um, fairly strongly. It would have been difficult, um, um, virtually impossible for somebody that age to cross the river um, mm -hmm. safely or cross the river at all. Um, mm -hmm. So is it possible that he, got to, that he got back down the hill to the river, um, could see traffic on the other side of the river, and tried to cross it and was swept away, sure, that's possible. Is it right. possible that he got to the highway and was picked up? I doubt it. I don't I don't think there's any reason to, to suspect that or that sort of foul play. Um, mm -hmm. I just um it's it's not in the realm of impossibility, but it is probably one of the least likely scenarios. Possible. That word comes up a lot in this case and in so many others, where someone just vanishes. And we'll get back to that in Chris's specific case. I'll touch on the theories that surround it. 
But again, that word, possible. What could have possibly happened? John Billman has wondered that about I don't even know how many people. The Michigan-based professor and writer wrote a story recently for Outside Magazine. The title, How 1,600 People Went Missing from Our Public Lands Without a Trace. My interest in this started um, back in 1997 when I was living in Wyoming. And um, the the uh, Olympic marathon um, hopeful uh, r- runner, Amy Bechtel, went missing um, up above Lander. And um, they they still haven't found Amy. And that, that case is uh, – it's still maybe the one I think about the most. Um, and so I watched the – I guess the, uh, the 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 vacuum, the aftermath. Uh, in the I read about it in the Casper Star Tribune. I listened to it on um, on NPR in Wyoming, and um, it it's uh, it still haunts me. So I did a story about that last year for Runner's World magazine. And as you know, with the the, the amount of research that goes into one of those articles, um, I, I learned a lot of sort of peripheral things that are going on now. And that led me to um, uh, this interest in these strange disappearances all over the continent. Billman's story, which can be found at OutsideOnline.com, by the way, touches on several cases. But it really uses the disappearance of 19-year-old Joe Keller, a runner from Tennessee, to explain what happens or can happen when someone goes missing on public land. He was a, a 19-year-old man who was um, finishing up a road trip, kind of a dream summer between between school semesters road trip with his buddies from Tennessee. And um, their last real stop was this guest ranch in um, in Caneos County, Colorado. And the, the guest ranch was actually uh, operated by, by Joe's aunt and uncle. And it's called the Rainbow Trout Ranch. And they were just going to have a, you know, kind of a dude ranch um visit with 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 some family and then head back to Tennessee. Joe was an athlete and um his buddy Colin uh um Colin Gwaltney was an athlete too, is an athlete. And uh they just went out for a I don't I don't want to say an easy run, but um there's nothing easy at running at 9000 feet, but just to get some exercise and do a workout and come and have dinner in an hour. It wasn't it wasn't some kind of an epic marathon. It was just uh it was just a a routine training run. Mm-hmm. And um, Colin, Colin came back, and um, and Joe never did, and um, and the strange fallout kind of started from that. Eighteen-year-old from Tennessee is still missing in southern Colorado, where he was on vacation with friends. Joseph Keller was last seen Thursday near Rainbow Trout Ranch in Antonito. He was jogging with a friend who sprinted ahead of him. He ran off ahead, and then he came back, and he never saw Joe again. Keller's an avid runner and a swim coach. Hundreds of people have been out searching that area for days now, and family members are offering a $10,000 reward for information. That clip, courtesy of our friends at Nine News, is from late July 2015, just days after Joe Keller went missing in the vast Rio Grande National Forest in southern Colorado. Antonito, the town they mention, is just a short drive from the New Mexico border. Keller's search, like Chris's, was in full force in the beginning. In that first week, according to Billman's article, about 15 dogs were used, and 200 people searched high and low for Joe, on foot, 
horseback, ATV. A drone was used, and an infrared-equipped airplane from the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control flew over where Keller disappeared. His friend's brother even set up a GoFundMe to pay for a helicopter search, and a $10,000 reward was posted. The official search ended in early August, when Joe had been missing for 13 days. His family kept trying. They hired investigators, and his aunt and uncle, who owned the ranch, did their own searches often. On July 6, 2016, almost a year after Joe went missing, his remains were found by a search and rescue hobbyist in a boulder field below a cliff. The cause of death? Blunt force trauma to the head. The consensus was that he appeared to have scrambled up the canyon rim and fallen down. start digging into Colorado and there are I mean I want to say dozens of these cases but that's probably an understatement um that's John again who wrote this story about Joe there there are volumes of these cases of of people missing in Colorado and it's not certainly not just Colorado but but it's Colorado is a hot spot and and it's understandable in that um it is amazingly wild and rugged and and remote and vast and and you know this stands to reason but that still leaves a lot of a lot of strange questions to be answered i think and you mentioned you know possibly dozens of people in colorado but but you don't know an exact number and it sounds like that might have been a um a, a hurdle that you had to deal with with this story the lack of official numbers Absolutely, and and as a writer, you know that um, your editor, um, it's important, and your your readers want facts and figures, right? They mm-hmm. want um, they want data, they want accountability, and and I really stre- uh, was was stressed out by that with this piece because I really I really worry about um, uh, junk data, right? I, mm-hmm. um, and and, I, and um, I, I think um, I feel really co- well. If I can feel comfortable at all with that figure of 1,600 people, I, I think it's way, way, way short, actually. And um, and could you run me through some of the official channels you tried to get numbers out of, and and kind of what happened with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, in the Interior Department, the National Park Service, the United States Forest Service. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody. Um, they stopped taking my calls pretty quickly. Now, actually, um, I, I'm kidding a little bit, but. Uh, I, I think I, especially with the park service, I think I made I made the I talked to several people there. And I made them very uncomfortable because I don't I don't think they, to their you know to their credit, they didn't um, they didn't. I'm not sure they have access to these kinds of numbers. I think it threw mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, it's a strange it's a it's a strange request to come in. I asked John what the response was to the story after it published, and he said it was pretty big, bigger than anything else he's written. And here are some of his final thoughts from reporting. This might be a good chance to just say, hey, uh, without those volunteers, um, it, 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 to say that search and rescue is imperfect is an understatement. But without those those volunteers, these missing people and their families would have nobody because mm-hmm. um, the federal government's going to stop looking for you real quick, even if, if they start at all. Because um, it sounds like a matter of money almost. Would that be accurate? I think that's well, and money, and, and as it applies to resources, absolutely. Right. I, I don't right. think it's. I don't think it's because they don't care. I think right. right. I think it is um, um, very limited res- 
resources. I mean, the the, um, uh, the Rio Grande National Forest, where where Joe went missing and was found, for for all those uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of acres, they have one law enforcement officer. Mm. Um, and and they didn't, he didn't, I wasn't given access, uh, I wasn't given permission to talk to him. With a lack of official numbers to go off of, Billman was left with estimates made by civilians and, yeah, some conspiracy theorists. Aficionados of the vanished, he called them. And one thing I learned while putting this episode together is that there's this whole community dedicated to people who go missing in our forests and on our public lands. As I dug into those blogs, watched videos, and scanned sites in that community, one case kept coming up, the case of Jared Adadero. In fact, when I would mention this podcast on Chris Vigil in passing to anyone who is from northern Colorado, Jared's name would most likely come up. He went missing almost 20 years ago, also on a trail along the Poudre River, like Chris. You know, people would say, the little guy. How old was he? Three? Four? A mountain lion grabbed him, right? We'll talk more about that after this short break. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by the Coloradoans' Facebook Messenger Alerts. Would you like to be the first to know when news breaks in northern Colorado? Or are you more of an entertainment junkie who would love to see the best options of things to do this weekend? Sign up for the Coloradoans' Alerts on Facebook Messenger for a truly customized news experience. Visit facebook.com slash coloradoan and send us a message to get started. Christian singles group come up to our resort, the Poudre River Resort, and um, they were going to be helping us uh, get the resort ready for the winter. That's Alan Adadero, Jared's dad, and he's talking about October 2nd, 1999, the last day he ever saw his son. And a group of people decided they wanted to go on a, uh, a small hike over to the uh, fish area. There's a, a trout farm <clears throat> not too far away from us, and uh, they wanted to go check out, you know, fish and it was maybe about a mile and a half away and so that that was pretty innocent and while they were talking about that my daughter came up and said dad is there any way I can go with them and the people said yeah you know we'd love to take her with us and so I kind of gave in and said no problem it should there should be no problem there well about five minutes later next thing I know Jared's coming up and he's saying hey dad um I want to go too and I'm like I'm like no you're you're not going and and I was reassured again, you know, we're just going over to the, uh, the fish farm here. Everything should be okay. So with that in mind, I'm like, okay, I, I guess, you know, that can't hurt. Well, it was like about maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours later, uh, somebody, uh, there was a commotion back in our store. We had a store that was um, attached to our apartment, and I heard a, a loud commotion out in the store. And a couple of people walked in the back, and they said, uh, Alan, um, you need to you need to sit down. I'm like, no, you know, I'm not going to sit down. You know, just tell me what's going on. And they said, well, we have a problem with Jared. And I said, you have a problem with Jared? What do you mean you have a problem with Jared? And they wouldn't say anymore. And I started playing the the 20 questions game. It was like, you know, well, did he fall? Did he break his arm? Did he break a leg? Um, you know, does he need stitches? What's going on? And their response was, he's okay. We just can't find him. The group with Jared ended up going further than they'd planned on a hike up the Big South Trail, the trail that the three-year-old disappeared from. And like the case of Joe Keller and Chris Vigil, a huge search ensued. You know, it, it was one of those things where when this first search and rescue guys got there, 
um, they walked by me and, and we made eye contact and uh, I could tell that they were acting as if my son was part of their family and it, it was one of the neatest feelings in the world. As a matter of fact, one of the guys said to me, um, if he's up here, we'll find him. Mm-hmm. And that was very, that was a very comforting statement, thinking that, well, if he's up here, we'll find him. And, and I thought that. I thought, yeah, you're right. You know, if he's up here, you guys are going to find him. And um, so I went through the first night and, and, and no nothing, which was still frustrating, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, you know, they're still going to find him. These guys know what they're doing. These guys are incredible. Um, I have all the faith in the world. I know they're going to find them still. So that next morning, it was early. I don't remember if it was 9, 10, or 11 o'clock. I can't recall. But um, uh, we heard this Huey flying up the, up the canyon, a helicopter. And I went out in the parking lot with my daughter. I had her in my arms, and we watched the helicopter go over us as it was flying up the mountain to help search for Jared. And about, I guess, I don't know, maybe an hour or two hours into the search, it crashed right next to the trail, too. So the the search effort for my son turned into a, a rescue and, and survival mission for these guys that were on that helicopter. Five people were injured in that crash, but they were all expected to make full recoveries, according to reports from that time. And as the, as the week uh, came to a close, it, it, it was frustrating. It was frustrating for a lot of us, for, you know, the people in the sheriff's department, for the family, and... And, and we all just tried to hold it together. And um, when I left the mountain that, 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 I believe it was Friday, either Friday or Saturday, when I left the mountain, it was it was the hardest thing in the world for me to do because I drove down the mountain with my daughter in my car and I didn't have my son. And I had a hard time dealing with that. The search went from trying to find Jared to trying to find his remains. And they did. Almost four years later, in June of 2003, Members of the Larimer County Search and Rescue Team unearthed a portion of a skull and tooth that ended up belonging to a little boy. The discovery happened in a remote area off the trail, about 150 feet from where hikers found pieces of Jared's clothing more than a week before. Okay, let me let me tell you the official narrative. Number one, they sent his clothes, his, his jacket, his pants, and his shoes into the CBI. The CBI found no blood or mountain lion hairs on his clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, his pants were found inside out. Uh, nobody can explain why they were found inside out. Matter of fact, uh, in my book, I've interviewed several mountain lion experts, and they all say there's no way a mountain lion would have left his pants there inside out. Mm-hmm. They've also said to me that um, his jacket would have been sh- uh, shredded, ripped to shreds. It w- I mean, it would have been ripped apart, and it's not ripped apart. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's kind of hard to, to comprehend the fact that there was a mountain lion. I even had an expert in a report say, that the reason why there wasn't any blood or fluids on his clothing is because either Jared or something or someone removed his clothing before there was enough bleeding onto his clothing. Hmm. Okay, now, you know that, that's you know I can comprehend that. That's no problem. But then later on in the report, it goes on to say that um, Jared was attacked next to the Big South Trail, and the reason why um, he was moved is this cougar. Uh, that was food for the cougar, and there were too many people walking back and forth on that trail and too much noise, so this cougar dragged Jared all the way up the mountain, 550 feet above the trail. Okay, mm-hmm. that's no problem, but that's where they found his clothing and everything, 550 feet above the trail. Well, if he was attacked by the trail, he sure didn't take his clothing off because they said they, they, said they either took his clothing off or uh, before the attack or right after the attack. Well, if that's the case, his clothing would be by the trail and not 550 feet up the mountain. So there are a lot of things that uh, that um, are kind of hard to answer. 
how I feel is I don't know what happened to him, and I'm not going to, you know, put myself in a corner and and say, yeah, this is what happened. Because I, I think there are two ways to look at it. I think, number one, you can come up with a theory and look for evidence to support your theory, or you can look for evidence to build a theory. And a lot of people are looking for evidence to support a theory, and I'm trying to just look for evidence to build a theory. It's just all confusing, and so I, try, I don't try to wrap my mind around one single thing. I'm just trying to be open-minded, hoping that one of these days, you know, we find out what happened. Like in Jared's case, it doesn't sound like Chris's family really gave up hope. Even with the horrible weather that stalled that initial search, Chris's mom is quoted in the newspaper saying that her husband never quit and searched well into the winter. He spoke to reporters, too, and said he clung to hope that Chris made it to the highway somehow and got picked up by a motorist. At least in that case, he'd still be alive. Leroy Vigil, by the way, Chris's dad, ended up passing away in the mid-1990s. I reached out to his mother and tried to find some other family members, but I haven't heard back. And I actually had a pretty big class, like 30-some, I think, but I had three Chris's, Chris V, Chris G, and Chris M. That's Jenny Kaplan. In 1978, she was a 28-year-old third-grade teacher at Cashlapooter Elementary School in Laporte, Chris's third-grade teacher. And before talking to her, all I'd heard about Chris was that he was an active nine-year-old. That was pretty much it. You know how you have the name tags on the things. There was all, you know, everybody had their little name tags. And I still remember Chris V. And when all this happened and all the kids would come in and, and we just kept his name tag and his seat. And it was empty. <laughs> it was really hard to explain to third graders because I couldn't even explain it. They weren't sure what happened to him. So um, I would, we would go to go to school and the counselor really kind of watched me and would come. He would come over and peek in and see and I would put thumbs down <laughs> and I would be crying and he would come in and take over the class and I would leave for a while and then I would compose myself and then come back. So it was really difficult. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever been through as a teacher. He loved, I had star charts, and there were, it was a, like baskets of extra activities. He would go, dive into those star charts and do them, do them, do them, and then I would correct them, and he would get stars by his name. So he um, worked very hard, was very competitive, but he used his time very wisely. Very smart little boy, extremely smart. As the school year came to a close, Ginny said that Chris's mom came in and had a special request. But anyway, she came in and, and wanted um, wanted to know about his star charts, and so I, gave, I cut his apart and gave it. And I said, no, he won that, and then wanted me to fill out his report card, which I did. Uh, you know, you had to write little things about underneath every su- subject about how they were doing. And I remember, because he was a great student, and I wrote glowing reports on him because, because it was true. And uh, she came in and picked that report card up. So I'm sure she still has that. It was so sad. Um, yeah, that's what I remember. The mom asking the report card, uh, me trying to explain to the kids what happened, which I did not know. Sad way to end it, and the empty seat. Uh, every day I would come in, and here's everybody, and, and, there, and there's that seat with his name tag on it, thinking, oh, no, and the counselor helping me out um, a whole bit for mm-hmm. for uh, the way I was feeling. So that And the star charts. That's exactly what I remember about Chris. Jenny also said she was pregnant with her second son at the time. He's 38 now, and Chris would be 48. It seems these 39 years later that all that's left of nine-year-old Chris are these memories and that plaque on Grey Rock Trail. 
and a Facebook page, kind of. Titled Missing Christopher Vigil, it was created and kept up by a man named Keith, who said he had been a neighbor of the vigils and was 11 when Chris went missing. The page gathered a little following, and Keith would post blog posts about the case. The link to the blog is dead, it's since lapsed, and something recently happened to the Facebook page. I checked yesterday and today and had some friends check as well, but nothing's coming up in any searches. But it was a place for commenters and Keith to talk about Chris. Some shared theories about what could have happened to him, including that he's still alive out there somewhere. Did I believe some of the theories? No. But the mere existence of that page struck me. It struck me from the beginning. Here we were, almost four decades later, and people still cared. They wanted to know what happened to the little boy who went out on a hike and never came home. I've seen, and I remember I, I came across this when I first started doing research on, on Chris. Um, there's a Facebook group that has a small but dedicated following, and it has some interesting theories about Chris's disappearance, that he's, you know, still alive somewhere. Um, have you heard any of that stuff, and do you have any opinions on it? Um, you know, I I heard that sort of stuff at the time. That's Dick Spies again, the man who led some of the rescue efforts for the county when Chris went missing. People will will um, come up with all sorts of theories. Um, I try to to not put too much stock in in any of that. Um, is it is it possible? All things are possible. Is it likely? Um, the the evidence that I have seen is that um, Chris Vigil was on that mountain that day, um, and there's no evidence um, that I've seen that indicates that he ever came off that mountain. Did cases stick with you, or do you still have cases that you still think about? Or oh, absolutely. I mean, all of it's yeah. cumulative. You don't you don't forget things. Yeah, is Chris's case on that list, or do you ever? Oh, think absolutely. That? Obviously, everybody would like to to know um, Chris's whereabouts, um, mm-hmm. just for closure. Um, I feel terrible for um, the family. They they don't have closure. That's that's a really hard thing. You know, people ask me, well, what do you think? think really happened and um everything that i thought was possible we tried to investigate to the fullest possible extent during the search Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm at the point where i don't know the same could be said for alan adadero he doesn't know what happened to jared and Joe Keller, the runner who went missing in southern Colorado, his mom told John Billman for that story that Joe ending up off trail and falling off of a cliff just didn't make sense to her. But I guess people vanishing is never going to make sense. Chris could have fallen into a hole, ducked into a crevice, and not survived that first night. Or he could have been swept away by the river, picked up by a motorist. The possibilities, they're endless. But there's only one answer. Will we ever know it? 
39 years later, I don't know, but anything's possible. Thanks to all of you who listened to the second episode of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast. Like I said, it wasn't a fun one, but I hope you found it interesting or learned a little something. If you're interested in John Bellman's story on missing people on our public lands, remember to visit OutsideOnline.com. I also read his piece for Runner's World on missing runner and Olympic hopeful Amy Bechtel, and it's really good. That can be found at Runner'sWorld.com. The title is Long Gone Girl. Alan Adadero mentioned his book, and I just want to let you know that the title of that is Missing, When the Sun Sets, the Jared Adadero story. Also, I found some old negatives in our archive room and got them developed. They're from those early days of the search for Chris, and they'll be online in a gallery at coloradoin.com. I'll also include some messaging from Pooter Wilderness volunteers on tips for hiking with kids, and something called the Avenza app, which I've been told will let you know where you are even if you get lost in the wilderness and don't have any cell service. Otherwise, be sure to reach out with any ideas for future episodes. They can be mysterious like this one, or fun like the one before it. Email me at erinudell at coloradoin.com, or find me on Twitter. My handle is at erinudell, that's E-R-I-N, U-D-E-L-L. And be sure to tune in next month on the second Thursday for The Way It Was, a podcast podcast. <laughs>